The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. I'd ask you to turn tonight to the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. So let's begin reading in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. If I had a topic for the sermon tonight, I would call it chosen. Life is filled with hardships. Life is filled with problems. I don't know about you, but the times in my life I felt like a failure have outweighed and outnumbered the times in my life where I felt like I've been a success at anything. Sometimes it seems like in my life that everything I'm trying and every avenue of my life is met only with failure and discouragement prevails and predominates and hardship seems to be all that I face in life. Now, you know, it's easy to, to blame God for some of these things, but let me tell you, I used to have a problem with that, Brother Roger. I'd see something bad happen and say, God, why would you do that? The truth is God didn't do that. <laughs> The, the problem is not God. The problem is that we live in a sin-cursed world which causes problems and causes troubles. And why are we surprised? Jesus himself said, I believe it's in the 10th chapter there, uh, in the last verse, he said, in this world ye shall have tribulations. That's a hard shall. That's a hard, that means what he's, he knows, he knew what was going to happen. In this world ye shall have tribulation but then he goes on to say be of good cheer for i've overcome the world but sometimes those who try to live a faithful life you end up feeling all alone i don't know if you noticed lately but if you hadn't noticed it lately just turn on your tv tonight you're going to notice that it seems like there's a lot more unfaithful people than there are faithful people there's a lot more who aren't interested in the things of god than those who are and sometimes we get to the point where we feel all alone and we feel like nobody else is out there who understands, nobody who cares, nobody who knows me. In fact, one of the biggest problems of depression, whether it's situational depression or clinical depression, is the feeling of isolation, the feeling of despair, the feeling of nobody knows the trouble that I've seen. The verses I've just read to you are the topic of a lot of debate from time to time in the seminaries of this world. And certainly there are those that look at these doctrines as, you know, as what I'm about to preach to you as a very doctrinal message. You know, sometimes we hear these, these ideas that there's doctrinal messages and there's practical messages. Brother Mackey, I found in my ministry that if a message isn't practical, it's not usually worth preaching. <laughs> So my doctrinal messages 
all have a practical application. The doctrines of this Word of God have a practical application. I want to share a story with you I read on the Internet. It has to do with football, which most of us get into. Um, it has to do with the University of Colorado. The University of Colorado football team in the early 2000s was at the top of their class. Colorado was doing well, okay? But in the early 2000s, it began to fall apart. There began to be allegations of recruiting scandals and sexual harassment and, and all kinds of problems, and it just seemed to be falling apart. It fell out of the top 25 rankings and, and barely maintained a winning record in 2004. In 2005, they went seven and six and lost their last four games and finally lost the last two games by a combined score of 100 to 6. <laughs> I'd say that's a, that's a team in turmoil. That's a team that, that's not doing very well. Their coach was fired right before the, the, the bowl game that year, and which resulted in another loss to Clemson. And Lou Holtz, who most of you have heard of Lou Holtz, a great coach who coached at William & Mary, North Carolina State, Arkansas, South Carolina, Notre Dame. He turned, in all those programs he coached at, he turned these teams around in about two seasons, and they were able to uh, uh, go to a bowl game after, I think, I think in the second season of each uh, tenure at each of these places. And they, you know, he's on the college game day. He's uh, interviewed, and they asked Lou Holtz, what would he do to turn around a program like this? And this is what he said. He said, as a new coach, I would go to the school. I would gather the players. I would tell them I understand that they wouldn't choose to be in the situation they're in, and nobody would want to be in this situation. He said, I would tell them that I understand they probably wouldn't choose to have me as their head coach. But then I would tell them this. I would tell them that I've seen their program, and I know what sort of success is possible at Colorado. And he said, this is, this is the point I want to get to. I would tell them that I came to the University of Colorado for a reason, that out of all the football programs in the country, I came to Colorado. And I would tell them that while you may not have chosen me as your coach, I chose you. And he went on to say that there's no limit to the possibilities in a place like this in college football when they find out somebody believes in them. Now, what's this got to do with God? <laughs> God's not a football coach. I know that. But that principle, that idea that somebody choosing you, somebody loving you makes a difference in your life is completely applicable to what we understand salvation to be all about. God chose you. He chose a people in Christ before the foundation of the world. We're going to come back to that in a minute, and we're going to find out that he didn't choose you because there was anything good in you but simply because he loved you. But I want you to think about that, child of God. We're living in a tough time. I am. I don't know about you. I've got some stuff. I, I've, been, I've been commiserating all afternoon with Sherry. She gets so tired of hearing me whine, I'm sure. I've got to leave here tonight after, after this service, and I've got to drive to Montgomery. I've got to spend three nights down there, and I've got to be away from home, and, and, and 
it hadn't been long, just a week or two ago, I had to spend one night away from home, and, and before the, the evening was over, uh, Sherry had pointed out how much I'd been whining all day about this. And I, you know, I just, that's, and that's nothing, that's nothing. I just don't look forward to it. I'm, 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 I'm dreading the week, and I know when I get out there in the world, there's going to be problems, and I'm going to have issues that I come up against, and there are going to be people I'm dealing with that don't like me, that don't love me. And sometimes, can we not get to the point where we feel isolated? Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows me like I wish they knew me. Well, I want to tell you something this evening, child of God. God knows you. He knows you intimately. He knows all about you. In Psalm 139, we find some strong statements here that are at the same time encouraging and also a little scary. <laughs> he knows all about your being, child of God. Listen to this in Psalm 139 and verse 1. O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compasseth my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. He knows all about us. He knows, every, he knows when I sit down. He knows when I stand up. He knows my thoughts from afar off. He knows the deep, dark thoughts of my mind that even I don't recognize sometimes. And notice it says he compasseth my path. That's a, that's a term used in, in, pl in uh, uh, planning. It's called winnowing. He's, he is sorted through. He knows exactly what I'm dealing with. And both when I arise up and when I lay down. He knows all about my being. He knows all of my thoughts. He knows all of my thoughts. He knows every word we say before we even speak it. Look at verse 4. There is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. God knows what I didn't say. <laughs> you can hear what I say, but God knows what I almost said. Now praise His name. There are there are times when I hold my tongue, when I almost say something that I shouldn't say, and I pull it back just at the last minute. <clears throat> Praise God for those times. But, and, and, and by the way, there's a difference in the consequences of sin and the penalty of sin, okay? Um, no matter what you do, whether it's a thought or an action, it's sin. If it's a sinful thought or a sinful act, it's the same in the sight of God, and the penalty is going to be the same. God had to, that sin had to be paid for by his son. Now the consequences of speaking something or doing something as opposed to just thinking it are different. Take, take David the king, for example. David would have been a lot better off. The consequences would have been much less if he had just looked upon Bathsheba and then gone on about his way. He might have had lustful thoughts about her, but he didn't act upon it. The consequences would have been would have been a lot different. Now, it would still have been sin, according to what Jesus says, if you look upon a woman to lust after her in your heart, you've committed adultery with her in the sight of God. But the consequences of actually committing the act are different here in this life. The sword never left David's house. There were much greater consequences as well to what he did. There's a difference in the consequences and the penalty, but here's what we're talking about tonight. 
is that no matter what you actually do, you may can hide it from others. You may think a sinful thought and almost say it, but hold it back at the last minute. But guess what? The people around you may not know what it was, but God knew that word. He said, there's not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. He knows all of our thoughts. And I'm going to tell you something. The, the knowledge of God is too wonderful for me. I'm like the psalmist. It's too wonderful for me. I can't, I can't fathom it. Did you know that he knew who we would be before we even were? Isn't that something? He knew who we would be and what we would be before we even were, before we even existed. Skip down to verse 13. Of Psalm 139. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Now look at verse 15. My substance, my body, my strength, you know, what I am, my substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in, in thy book, now listen to this. In thy book, all my members, all of them, which in continuance were fashioned. I'm sorry, all my members were written. Let me back up. In thy book, all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. You know what God's saying here to us? He's got a book written about your life that already has the ending in it before it's even occurred. The book of your life was written before you were even formed. Now let me just hasten to say that doesn't mean that God has caused everything in your life to happen. You know, that sin you committed yesterday, that sin you committed last night, this morning, I'm sorry for me, this afternoon, <laughs> that sinful, God didn't put that in your mind. God didn't make you do the things that you shouldn't have done, but he already knew about all of them. You know, sometimes we get to blaming God for sin, right? You turn to James sometime, the first chapter, you read about where sin comes from sin said let, let no man say when he's tempted he's tempted of God for God cannot be tempted with sin he said we are tempted when we're drawn away by our lusts and lust when it's conceived bringeth forth sin and sin bringeth forth death God didn't make Adam do what he did oh but he was prepared for it he was ready for it he knew about it before he even did it I, I was talking to someone not too long ago who said, I just don't believe God knows what, is gonna, you know, what you're going to do when it comes to certain things. And I said to him, I, that's not what I read in the 139th Psalm. That's not what I read. God doesn't know whether you're going to accept him or reject him when it comes to eternal salvation. Of course, I was talking to someone who was of the Armenian persuasion. And my response to him was he knew the, the, the thought, he knew the, the word in my tongue before it ever came out. You see, God knows who we are and who we would be before we even were. Don't tell Jeremiah God didn't know him. You know, 
I, I really have a heart for Jeremiah. Jeremiah, I feel sorry for Jeremiah. Read, read the life of Jeremiah. Read about what Jeremiah had to experience in his ministry. You know, Daniel, Daniel lived about the same time. He was a younger man, and he went into the, uh, the, the Babylonian captivity, and he had, a, he had a rough time over there, a lot of temptations, a lot of troubles. But in general, Daniel lived in the lap of luxury. He had, a, he had a ministry that while it was difficult, it, in comparison to Jeremiah, he had it made. Jeremiah wandered around Judah before the captivity and he got thrown in prison and he got ridiculed and he became an enemy of the state. And then after the captivity, he wandered around in squalor over there and he, he never was allowed to take a wife or have a family. And he had all these problems that he had to deal with. Well, the first thing God told him in preparing him for the ministry was this. And you see, I don't believe God does things just to be doing them, Brother Mackey. I believe he did it because he knew what Jeremiah would need. He knew what kind of ministry Jeremiah would have. And in the first chapter of Jeremiah, I want you to listen to what he says. In verse um, 2, he says to, well, let, let's go to verse 3. It came in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, and Zedekiah, the son of Josiah. And he, he gives, gives us the background here and the setting of when it came. And then in verse 4, he says, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Here's the first thing he's going to hear as a, as a newly ordained or called prophet. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. You know why he's telling him he's, what he's telling him here? He's saying, Jeremiah, before you even knew who you were, I knew who you were. Before you even knew what you would be, I knew what you would be. I knew what my plans for you were. It was to call you as a prophet. And you need to know that before you start this ministry of hardship, this ministry of difficulty, this ministry that will ultimately result in multiple incarcerations and so, many, so much wandering around that it's going to be so difficult. Before I formed you in the belly, I knew you. And he said, and before you came forth out of the womb, I like this, I sanctified thee. You know what he's talking about there? This is another example of one who's born again in his mother's womb. John the Baptist is one example. John the Baptist leaped for joy in his mother's womb. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. You don't have joy without the Spirit of God. People who think that you can do something to get born again and, and try to work that up, they don't understand what the fruit of the Spirit's all about. Does the apple bear the apple tree or does the apple tree bear the fruit? Does the fruit bear the tree or the tree bear the fruit? Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It comes from the tree of the Spirit. The tree had to bear the fruit. You have to have the Spirit before you can leap with joy. John the Baptist did it, and here's one who was sanctified before he came forth from the womb. He was set apart. He was, I believe he was born of the Spirit there. And he, he was ordained to be a prophet to all the nations. Why does he tell him that? He tells him that because Jeremiah is going to need to know this when he comes up against the opposition and the ridicule and the problems of life that he's going to experience. See, Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they know you, child of God. I want you to, I want you to start thinking about how many hairs you have on your head. Now, I, I grant you it's getting easier for me to count my, my hair. <laughs> uh, they're getting fewer and fewer. But even... 
those who may have less hair than others, I challenge you, there's no way you can figure out how many hairs you have on your head. And yet Jesus said the very hairs of our head are all numbered. Wow, isn't that amazing? He knows everything about us as, he, as we sit here today. Back over in Psalms, the 139th chapter where we just left, listen to this. He knows everything about us. Beginning in verse 5, Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. You know what David's saying here? He's saying this blows my mind. <laughs> this is blowing my mind in today's vernacular. He said I can't get this. I, I can't imagine how this could be. So he says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell or the grave, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. You know, don't we like to hide in the darkness? He said, even the night shall be light about, about me or around me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to me. As we sit here tonight, God knows every single thing about us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Which, by the way, means something a little bit scary if you really understand what a sinner you are. He knows all about your depravity. He knows all about how low down you are. <laughs> He knows how low down you are in the hierarchy. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 17, he says, All nations, and that word nations there is a Hebrew word for the Gentiles. All nations before him are as nothing, which I get nothing, but he says they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. I never did understand negative numbers, Brother JB. I never did. I just, it was always, you know, how can you have something that's a negative? Well, God deals in negative numbers. He says, in His sight, we are nothing, but we're not just nothing, we're less than nothing. And vanity, which means emptiness. <laughs> he calls, you know, often He uses Jacob, literally, but sometimes, but most of the time, after, certainly after the days of Jacob, He uses the term Jacob as a representation of all of his children. And he says in Isaiah 41 and verse 14, Fear not thou worm Jacob and ye men of Israel. And he goes on to say he'll help us, but notice what he says. He calls us a worm. He knows how low down we are in the hierarchy of things. Man likes to think he's been marching up since the primordial goo which caused life to begin he's gone from tadpoles to apes to now men and he's getting better all the time beloved we believe that he start man started out at the top and he's been getting worse he's been going down ever since you know the evolutionists believe he started at the bottom and is working his way up beloved we started at the top in the garden of eden with a with, with the ability to fellowship with god face to face and after adam's sin we've been going downhill ever since God knows how low down we are in the hierarchy. He knows how low down we are in our morality. You know what he calls our righteousnesses in Isaiah 64, 6? Filthy rags. Whatever works you try to bring before him and lay before his throne in, in, in atonement for your sins are nothing but filthy rags in his sight. Over in Ephesians again in the second chapter, when he tells us we've been quickened, he tells us what we were first. 
He said we were dead in trespasses and sins. He tells us what we did. We walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. He tells us where we were. We, were, we had our conversation or our lifestyle in the past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as others. Don't you ever get high and mighty child of God. Because guess what? You've still got that nature. Praise God, you got a new nature. <laughs> you got a nature that can't sin, but you still got that old nature that only sins. You were by nature, you, you say, well, I'm glad I'm better than this one. I'm better than that one. Listen, that's a, that's a false comparison. You can always find somebody better than you, and you can always find somebody worse than you. But you'll never reach the standard of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were by nature children of wrath, even as others. He knows how low down we are in our morality. And he knows how low down we are in our ability. You say, well, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to, I'm going to get educated enough that I can, you know, if I can just get the right socialization program, if I can just get the right educational program. Beloved, if that had been the case, Adam would have never sinned. Adam was in the best socialization program there was. He didn't have any bad influences on him. The only thing they had there, the, the devil was the only thing that came in in the form of the serpent. He had face-to-face -face contact with God. He had, the, he had the perfect environment. He had, Adam, you know, you know what frustrates me more than anything else usually is work, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't it be nice if you didn't have to work? <laughs> you didn't have to work for things. If you just snap your fingers and they appear you just walk out there and say you know i'm hungry i'm gonna go you know adam could just walk out into the garden and he could just pluck a fruit off the off the vine and he could eat it and be satisfied he didn't have to worry about diabetes <laughs> he didn't have to worry about his blood sugar you know he didn't have to worry about any other illness coming in or any problems with cancer if you eat the wrong foods you'll get you know he had it perfect he had it just made just right if anybody could have ever ascended the stairway to heaven, by socialization or education, it would have been Adam. And look where Adam ended up. And you know, Adam didn't even have a sin nature. That's a whole other message altogether, Brother Ronnie. But, it's, but, but Adam didn't have a sin nature. Adam was, Adam was innocent. It was the sin nature came on him after he fell. And yet even he failed. Adam shows us the best that man could ever be. The best that man could ever be. Is, is maybe put it, I, I don't know how long he waited before he ate of the fruit, you know. Sometimes people don't like the fact that Adam was our representative. They say, I'd have done better. I wish I'd have been there. I'd have done better than Adam. I'd have, I'd have, I'd have, I'd have done differently than Adam. You probably would have. You'd have run straight to the tree and eat of the fruit, probably. <laughs> That's what I feel like I would have done because I'm Adam multiplied. Now, you say, boy, that's some... You'll be preaching a downer message tonight, aren't you, Brother Chris? You ever had the experience of having your bubble burst? You know, you get something built up, and especially sometimes it happens in, in my line of work. When I was in court, I'd have a trial or a hearing or something. And I'd prepare this case, and I'd think, man, this is a great case. And I'd prepare my, my closing argument, and, boy, I'd just knock the, knock the ball out of the park, Brother Roger. I just, man, I was, it was just eloquent and great. You know, I just, 
raise, you know, lift it. I'd bring this case to the judge, and I'd sit it up there and say, look, look at what I've got here, judge. Look at my case. Look at all this. And he'd just say, ah, that's a bunch of hogwash. Denied and throw it out. Just burst your bubble, right? <laughs> you know why? Because I had my hopes built up. I had a different idea of the situation, a different assessment of the circumstances than what the judge had. There are times when, when people, you know, I, don't, I hope you're not this way. I'm, I'm terrible about this. I, if I, after this, after this sermon, and, and I'm, let me just say, I, I don't recall a time when anybody's done that here at this church. But I, I have preached in other places where I would preach a message, and Brother John Morgan, you and Brother Ronnie may know what I'm talking about. I'd preach a message, and, and I might have thought it was a pretty good message, you know, and then people would come up to me and say, boy, that was a great message. Man, that was awesome. You'd have 15 or 20 people come up and say, boy, what a wonderful message. And one person, one person come up and say, well, I didn't agree with that. I didn't think that was the, you need to think, you need to change this, you need to do this. And it would burst my bubble and I would be downcast for the rest of the week, you know. It just blow me out of the water, so to speak. The reason is I had heightened expectations. Well, here's what I'm getting at. People always want to tell you about how bad you are. And if you have an elevated sense of yourself, that can be a blow to your ego. But if you already know how depraved you are, if you already know how bad you are, if you already know what a sinner you are, there's nothing anybody can tell you to bring you down any further. And beloved, as primitive Baptists who, who ought to believe or supposed to believe in the total depravity of man, we ought never be lifted up in pride. There ought to be nothing that anybody can say to us that would burst our bubble because we ought to understand from the beginning what depraved sinners we are. And I want to tell you, beloved, God knows what a depraved sinner I am. I don't want you to know what a depraved sinner I am. There are things about me I do not want you to know because I know if you knew them, you would be so disappointed, you would be so upset at me, you probably wouldn't let me preach again, and your vision of me, your view of me would, would, would just go way down. <laughs> but here's the good news. So this sounds like bad. No, it's good news. God already knows how bad you are. God knows better than anybody else. You may be married. You may have a wife or a husband who is your closest companion. Uh, my dear wife and I have been married nearly 30 years. She knows me better than anybody else, but even she doesn't know the depths of my depravity. And neither do I know hers. But God does. God knows it. So what's the good news? The good news is that he knows how bad you are, and yet God chose you. God chose you. You see, these, these doctrines aren't just high theoretical things. These doctrines ought to mean something to us. I don't know about you, but I get down and out. I get, I get to feeling isolated. I get to feeling a sense of myself as the sinner that I am, and that nobody could possibly love me, and yet God chose me. Remember what we read in Ephesians? He said, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Beloved, that's important to us. He chose you, not someone else. He chose you, beloved, with all your failings and with all your faults and all your problems and all your discouragements, all your whining. 
All the things that other people may get ill at you about. All the things that you may get mad at yourself about. He chose you anyway. I'll never forget this statement by Brother Donald Parker, who is an independent Baptist preacher I grew up with. Many of you know him. He said this one time, and I'll never forget it. He said, I believe that God would have sent his son to die on the cross if I had been the only one in the covenant of grace. Now, we think about God choosing a, a, a people in Christ, a, and it's a multitude no man can number. I like to think about that, being part of a multitude that no man can number. And this amorphous mass of people that he's chosen that we don't know, but that he knows directly. But, but let's boil it down to something more personal. God chose you, child of God. If you're here tonight and you have been born of the Spirit, your heart has been tendered to think on Christ and to love him and to trust him. That didn't come from within you. Because you're that sorry, low-down sinner we've been talking about. But what it came from was the fact that God chose you. He didn't choose you because you were better. We've already kind of hinted at that. Say, so, well, why did he choose me? You'll just have to ask him that when we get to heaven. But it wasn't because of all the good things you've done or all the beautiful artistic thoughts you would think one day. <laughs> In fact, over in Deuteronomy chapter 7, I'm just going to turn there. You can turn there if you want, but you don't have to. Deuteronomy chapter 7, he dealt with this very issue when it came to the children of God, the children of Israel. He said, um, Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6, he said, Thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. Now listen to this. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Now I know this is specifically talking about the nation of Israel. But the nation of Israel was also representative of all of the children of God. And this principle applies to us in the same way. Now listen to this, verse 7. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. He didn't choose the nation of Israel to be his representative people here on this earth, and likewise he didn't choose you to be his, his personal child of God because there was something great about you. You know, he didn't look down here, let's see what the biggest nation is. Well, here's Babylon, here's Egypt, we'll choose them. No, he chose the fewest people. Over, I, love, I love this over in... Well, we'll come back there in a minute. But just, just, just understand that God didn't choose you because you were so great. He said, here's why. You want to know why he chose you? Verse 8, because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn. <laughs> Isn't that something? You know why he chose you, child of God? Because he did. Because he loved you. Because he, loved you. he chose you with all of your problems. And by the way, he wants to have close fellowship with you. And does that not also blow your mind? It blows my mind. As David said, this is too wonderful for me. I can't attain unto this knowledge. I don't understand why anybody would want to, be, have, want to have close fellowship with me. But the God of the universe wants to have close fellowship with us. 
He's already got a relationship with us. We're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. We have been, our sins have been paid for by Jesus on the cross. And, and if, if we have been born again, then we have come into a vital or a living relationship with Him. And He tells us in three different places in the Word of God that we're the apple of His eye. In Deuteronomy 32 and verse 10, Psalm 17 and verse 8, and Zechariah 2 and verse 8. He said, we're the apple of the eye. In Deuteronomy 32 and verse 10, he's talking about Jacob. And so another, again, as a representative of God's people, he found him in a desert land in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. In Psalm 17 and verse 8, David is asking, the psalmist is asking him here to keep me as the apple of your eye. And in Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 8, I like this. He tells us that he that toucheth you, if someone abuses you, child of God, he's touching the apple of his eye. That word apple, that phrase there, apple of his eye, is an idiom. It means it doesn't mean literally what it's talking about, an apple in your eye. But it's trying, it's, it's, it's trying to display something. It's kind of like we say it's raining cats and dogs. You know, it's not literally raining cats and dogs, but it's raining hard. Here he's saying, you're the apple of his eye, and that literally means the little man of the eye. And it's a reference to the pupil in which as you might look in a glass, you see a little image of the man. You know, the, the man is reflected in the eye. And it refers to something or someone that one cherishes above all others. He is keeping us as the apple of his eye, he desires such close fellowship with us as if we are in his very eye. But you say, wait a minute, I'm poor. I haven't got anything to offer him. You know what James chapter 2 and verse 5 says? He says, hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you say, I'm not wise, I'm not mighty, I'm not strong. Why would he choose me? Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 1. He says in verse, um, verse 26, he says, You see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. You say, I'm not qualified to be a child of God. I know that. <laughs> You're not. But he loved you anyway. He chose you anyway because God loves you. You see, God knows you better than anyone else, and He chose you anyway. You know why? Because He loves you. You remember what he, we were, where we were at in Ephesians? He said in the first couple of verses we read that we were chosen in Christ. He said, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us. See, love is wrapped up in the election of God. In chapter 2, we read in the first three verses about where we were when we were dead in sins. And then in verse 4, we say, we read, But God, but God, who is rich in mercy for the fact that we were so good, 
or that we did so many good works and made so many good choices. No, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace, you're saved. I love that phrase, great love. It wasn't some fleeting crush. It wasn't some infatuation that God had with, with humankind. Uh, you would almost think that's what it is to hear the religious world talk about uh, uh, what the sinner has to do to avail himself of this fleeting passion of God. Because you see, if you don't do it right, it's just fleeting. Because if you don't accept him, if you don't make the right choice, if you don't pray the right prayer, then he's just going to send you to hell forever. Beloved, the people that God loves will never have one hair of their head singed by the fires of hell. We may experience hell on earth because we don't follow him like we should. But when this earth, this life is over, we will be with him for eternity. Why? Because he had a great love for us. He loved us so much that he sent his own son to die for us. That's real love. Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And the idea that he would call sinners his friend. We're told in the word of God that the Pharisees accused him of being the friend of sinners. And they did it in a derogatory way. But praise God, they, had, they didn't realize it, but they were speaking some of the great greatest truth that there's ever been that Jesus Christ is the friend of sinners. Over in Deuteronomy chapter 32 again in verse 9, he says, The Lord's portion is his people, and Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. We often think about heaven being our portion, our inheritance. That's what he's talking about there. It's an inheritance. That our inheritance is in heaven. We think of our lot being heaven. But beloved, he's saying here that his lot is you and I. Boy, I think he got a, <laughs> he got a bad deal on that, didn't he? We get heaven, he gets us. <laughs> My goodness. Do you know why he got us and why we get heaven? It was for the great love wherewith he loved us. If you ever see the doctrine of election as a harsh some kind of mean doctrine. You've missed the point. Election is the greatest manifestation of the love and mercy of God. There's a song we sing, Oh, Tell Me No More. It's in the book here. And there's a verse in that song that says this, And when I'm to die, receive me, I'll cry. For Jesus hath loved me, I cannot tell why. But this I do find. We too are so joined, he'll not live in glory and leave me behind. Now I know that the Lord looked upon the travail of his soul and was satisfied. And I know that he finished the work. But as I've said many times, there's a sense in which Jesus is not yet satisfied. He will not be satisfied until every single one of his elect children are home to be with him. See, he won't live in heaven forever without us because he'll never be satisfied with that. One day he's coming back to get us. And then he'll stand there in front of the Father and he'll say, Behold, I and the children thou hast given me. You know, some of you have children out there. Some of you lost children. When a child can't be home or something's happened to a child, are you satisfied just because the others are there? You say, Well, I've got, you know, four children. Uh, you know, me personally, I've got four children. We'll, we'll get at least three of them together, and that'll be enough. <laughs> no, 
That's not, there's no satisfaction in that. I'm not satisfied until all of my children are with me. And that's the way the Lord Jesus Christ is. He will not be satisfied until we're there. And He loves us so much that He's going to make it so. And finally, let me just say this. I'm looking forward to heaven one day. I'm looking forward to the sweet by and by. But I live in the nasty here and now. I'm, I, I live in a in a sin-cursed world where I'm struggling every day. And the fact that I'm reminded daily that one day I'll be with Him is important to me. But something that's also important to me is that I know He's with me now. That I know He's with me here and now. David the psalmist said in one place, he said, I had fainted if I had not thought to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Well, I want to assure you, child of God, He loves you so much that He sent His Son to die for you. He loves you so much that He's going to make sure you're with Him one day. But He loves you so much that He will never leave you here and now. He certainly won't leave us eternally. <laughs> Brother Buddy mentioned it this morning. There's none that can pluck us out of His hands. But praise God, He will not leave us temporally. The greatest lie the devil ever will tell you is that you're alone in this world. Elijah thought he was alone. He said, there's nobody left to do your work, God. I, just kill me. It's time to go. You know, that's one of the greatest problems we, get in, we, we can get into as a child of God is feeling isolated, as we said to start with, feeling alone. There's no one here. But praise God, He will never leave us or forsake us. God told Elijah, I've got 7,000 that I've reserved that you don't know about. You know, anytime we get to thinking that all that God's doing is what we can see, you know, we've got problems. I've, I've been guilty of that, but Elijah surely was guilty of that. There's a lot more work going on over here that we don't know about that God is doing. God's not, you know, if, 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 if old Chris's ministry shuts down, that's not going to shut down the kingdom of God. Sometimes we feel that way, right? That if what I'm doing ends and that's it, God's going to have to pack up and go home. <laughs> no, God's got a lot going on. But more than that, God was with Elijah. God was with Elijah. And you know what else? He won't suffer us to be tempted more than we're able. Now, you didn't, you know, remember, sometimes we misquote that verse. We say, well, God won't put on us more than we can bear. That's not what the verse says. The verse over in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, uh, There hath no temptation taken you. Well, see here, there's some temptation coming on you that God's not putting on you. In fact, God's not tempting us. It's the sin-cursed world out there. It's the devil. It's the world. It's the flesh. It's us. We're the cause of many of our own problems. But he says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful. See, God's there, even in the midst of the temptation. God is there. God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. In other words, it's not that if you obstinately continue down the path your own, going against the grain, going against God's Word, going against the will of God, it's not that you won't be ultimately crushed by the weight of that. You will, but God has given you a way of escape. You see, that's how God's faithful. You know, the prodigal son, I've said this many times, the prodigal son 
it would have done him much good for somebody to go down to him and pat him on the back and say, oh, son, I know you're sitting down here in the pig pen. You spent all your daddy's money. You partied and lived it up. Now you're in the midst of the family. But hang in there. God ain't going to put on you more than you can bear. <laughs> he had more than he could bear upon his shoulders. And if he had stayed in the pig pen, it would have crushed him. But praise God, he came to himself. And you know what the way of escape was? To go back to God. Child of God, he's faithful. He's not going to leave you without a way of escape. You know what the way of escape is? Go back to him. Say, I hadn't been reading my Bible like you. Get, get in the Word. I hadn't been praying like get to Get on your knees. I hadn't been going to church. Go to church. Seek the kingdom of God first in your life. And these other things will be added unto you. See, God's faithful like that. And by the way, He won't ever quit thinking about us. I understand this better now that I'm a father. There's not a day goes by that I don't think about every single one of my children. Whether they're here or whether they're away from me, I think about them every day. But not all day, every day. I have other things that interfere. But God thinks about us eternally and forever. Back in Psalm 139, verse 17, How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more than in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. He will not leave us, child. You know why? Because he loves us. Now let's wrap this up. Even the counselors of this world teach us that there's immeasurable value to having somebody in your corner. Somebody who loves you and believes in you. When you feel isolated and alone, it's important to have support. It's great if you have parents and teachers and friends. It's wonderful if you have counselors of this world. But the Bible says we have someone much greater that we can count on to always be in our corner. There's no greater blessing, is there? than to know that the God who flung the stars out into space knows you by name and loves you eternally. You may get discouraged. I do. You may feel like a failure. I do. But God made us unique. He knows us by name. Did you know our names are graven in the palm of His hand? And He has a purpose for you in this life. Elijah thought his purpose was over. He said, this too, I'm done. They're all out to kill me. Kill me, Lord. I, I just soon die. God said, Elijah, get up and get back to work. <laughs> you can read it sometime in 1 Kings chapter 19. He said, you got your greatest work ahead of you. You got to anoint two kings and your successor. And he said, and by the way, I've got 7,000 that hadn't bowed their knee to Baal. You're not alone like you think you are. And ultimately... I love Elijah's story. He got so down and out under the juniper tree, just like I get down and out. And he said, I, I, th this woman's trying to kill me. Lord, just kill me. Take me on. I'm, I'm ready to die. And he's one of the two men in the Old Testament that never died. <laughs> I've said this before, but I just can't help but believe the Lord has a sense of humor. I just, I just, I'm going to ask when I get to heaven if I think of it. it didn't, Elijah, did he swoop down in that chariot of fire by that old juniper tree to point it out to you as you were going up to heaven? That's where I was wanting to die, and here I am not even dying. I'm going to heaven. You say, that's pie in the sky by and by. That's fanciful thinking. Beloved, 
You heard this morning, you that were here, about the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that He could come back any moment. He could come back any day. We are living in a time when it appears that we are closer, and I know we're closer now than we've ever been to the return of the Lord. We might be among the number that are still living when the Lord comes back. Think about that the next time you get into your pity party like I do. You're down and out. Woe is me. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Think about if in the next 30 seconds the trumpet would sound and the sky would split. Oh, the, the prayer didn't get answered the way I wanted it to get answered. The sickness didn't leave like I wanted it to leave. The promotion didn't come through. The financial difficulties didn't dissipate. The, the marriage difficulties are still there. The child is still not doing what I want him to do. Oh, woe is me. What's that? What's that I hear? Is that a trumpet? Is that the last trump? Is the sky splitting wide open? Is the Lord coming back to take us home? <laughs> it could happen just like that, child of God. You know why? Because he loves you. You know why you can be certain you'll be in that number? Because he chose you before the foundation of the world and sent his son to die for you. Why is it important that we understand the truth of God's sovereign grace? It ought to make a difference in our lives. It ought to cheer us up as we walk around tomorrow in this sin-cursed world. Romans 8 and verse 28 said, We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to His purpose. What things is He talking about? He's fixing to tell us. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, then He also called, whom He called, then He also justified, and whom He justified, then He also glorified. In the past tense, even though it hadn't already happened, Oh, these things working for our good, beloved, are never going to fail. He says, what should we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? I know what I'm saying to these things. Praise God. It's going to help me get through another week, Brother Mackey. I think I'll be able to make it. Because I know that whether y'all love me or whether you want to be my friend or not, I have the friend of sinners who chose me and wants to have close fellowship with me. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.